but, but today I am actually coming to you less as a pastor and um, more just as, as a person. And the message today is really less of a sermon and more of just a story. And, uh, and Dale just asked me, you know, take us to Everest, take us, kind of give us an a, a experience of what it was like up there. But before I do that, I do want to jump to just one scripture, and that is Hebrews chapter 12, kind of an obvious scripture for what I'm going to talk about today. But if you have a Bible, turn with me, I'm sure the words will be up here. But Hebrews 12, Paul writes this, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run. Say run. See, the Bible says running is, is good. My wife will, will, the minute I'd say that, my wife will give me Proverbs 28 verse 1, which says the, run, the, the, the wicked run when no one is chasing them. Um, and so, you know what I mean? We could just, but, um, but he says this, run, run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Every single one of us have a race that's been marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So you will not grow weary and lose heart. How many of you, if you're really honest with yourself this morning, are feeling a little bit weary? You're feeling, uh, maybe you've lost heart. The last few weeks, to be honest, have been quite tough for, for Jess and I, my wife and I. My boys are going to be at the 10 a.m. service. i got two boys, a 12 and a 10-year-old. And uh, we were on a ministry trip uh, in January. And when we got back, the very next day we got back, Luke, my youngest, did like a triple somersault flip, not intentionally, off uh, an obstacle that we were part of. And he landed on his head on the corner of this A-frame. And, I, and I, I was about 100 meters away. I started running. I thought he was dead. Because he did one of those, you know, like fail army where you scorpion, you know, his head literally came down. His I thought this, this, is, this is it. Anyway, he needed to have plastic surgery and he's got a big cut on his poor little 10-year-old boy. And uh, anyway, got through that fine. And then two weeks later, he was wrestling with his brother playing soccer and uh, broke his collarbone. So this poor dude is walking around in a cast with a head injury. I think we're going to get maybe called by the <laughs> child welfare people or something. But... But of course, it put pressure on us because now he's bored, he's not at school, you know, we, you, don't wanna, you wanna try and limit the amount of screen time, you can't give the guy like five hours of Minecraft or whatever. Um, and so, you, you know, now this is tension, so then Jess and I are having tension with each other, is it just me? Okay, just me, cool, you guys are. Um, and I mean, these are just insignificant problems, insignificant challenges to what many of you might be facing in this room. And I, I know there's, even the community of Belito has experienced so much grief, so much loss uh, in this little while. And so it kind of, my, my hope is that something of my Everest story, not just the victory and the achievement, but actually the pain and the struggle of what it took to get there will inspire you, will inspire you, as Paul writes, to keep running the race with perseverance, to keep climbing, to keep moving forward despite the setbacks, despite the inevitable trips along the way. And when Dill asked me to speak today, I must be honest, I was a little nervous to share my story because I really don't want this to be about my story. I want it to be about God's story. And that's not some like false humility thing. That's because the reality is my story and any motivational story that you hear is not enough. <laughs> It's not enough. No achievement, no success, no you know, number on your pay statement, no job you attain. No, none of that is enough. The only story that's enough is the story of Jesus. 
I love what uh, the message version, how it translates Hebrew 12. It says this, when you find yourself flagging in your faith, go over that story again, referring to the story of Jesus. Go over that story again, item by item, that long litany of hostility he plowed through, and it says this, that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. I don't know about you, but I need a shot of adrenaline in my soul today. And that is my hope, that some of my story in the mountains and all of that, but ultimately God's story would shoot some adrenaline into you this morning. Amen? Now, when it comes to my Everest story, I'm not gonna start at the beginning. I'm gonna kind of start somewhere in the middle. And this is on day nine of the trek. It's the 18th of November, 2022. Uh, it's the morning of the world's highest obstacle course race and the world's highest marathon. And I want you just kind of trying to imagine yourself in the moment. Uh, it's 5 a.m., it's pitch dark. We're at a little place called Gorak Shep. I think there'll be a picture on the screen. Uh, Gorak Shep is a pretty horrible place, to be honest. It's like the last human outpost before you get to Everest Base Camp. And uh, it's freezing outside, it's dark. Uh, the day before, it had been really tough. We'd hiked from a place called Lobochet to Gorak Shep, then on to Everest Base Camp at 5,634 meters, and then back down to Gorak Shep. So it was about a 14-hour day of walking in this very high altitude. So your body is feeling terrible. Um, most of the team, there were 34 of us, most of us had developed AMS, which is acute mountain sickness, where you start to feel nauseous, uh, you start to feel you don't want to eat, you can't sleep. Uh, at night, I'd have to sleep with my, uh, my the, the salmon bladders, you know, the water bladders. I'd have to sleep with them in the sleeping bag. Otherwise, when you wake up in the morning, it's all frozen. <laughs> Um, and so you got to kind of, and you, you can hardly sleep. Um, uh, it got really dark, uh, like dark as in my soul, um, uh, that night because just as we went to bed, the guy who was supposed to win the race, he's like a professional mountain runner from the Philippines. Uh, we'd actually just watched him uh, being airbagged and transported via helicopter back to Kathmandu because he was dying of HAPE, which is high altitude pulmonary edema, where your lungs essentially fill with fluid. And this is the guy who's supposed to win it, you know. So all of us are questioning, like, is this safe? Are we going to, like, live? You know, at one point in the night when I was sort of tossing and turning, I literally, um, just being vulnerable here, I literally started, like, writing letters to my kids. Like, like, hey, if dad doesn't make it home, you know, bury me on the mountain kind of thing. I mean, it got pretty, pretty dark. Um, and I was kind of going through all these questions, you know, uh, like, what if? Oh, one thing, I have a body battery. Anyone with Garmin, you know, you get those body batteries. It like tells you, you know, how much energy you've expended. And normally when I wake up in the morning, it's like 95%, depending on how I've slept. And then as the day goes on, it sort of wears down. And, you know, a tough day, you get to the end of the day, it's like 25, 20%. On the morning of the marathon, I woke up and my body battery at the start of the day was 5%. <laughs> So you're the most exhausted you've ever been in the most extreme environment you've ever found yourself, and you're about to run the most extreme race you've ever run. This is kind of the headspace that you're in. And that night, I was asking myself these questions. I was saying, you know, what if I get lost? Uh, what if, you know, because it's kind of a solo race. You're out on your own. You have to navigate yourself. What if I get lost? What if I break my ankle? What if I freeze to death? What if I, you know, what if I... And I felt like in that moment, I felt like a word from God just dropped into my spirit, and I felt like God said to me, Tom, what if it went well? What if you actually had the best race of your life? What if this thing really worked out? And, and that kind of, it did something in me. It sort of shifted my head and my heart. What if it went well? And it was just one word from God or two words from God. What if? But how many of you know one word from God can change the trajectory of your life? Can change the destiny of your life? 
Now, let me kind of back up a little before you think this experience was all just horrible suffering. Um, a lot of it was, but there were also beautiful moments in the, in the hike up, uh, the actual trek to base camp, if any of you have done it. It's an amazing, honestly, one of the most beautiful treks I've ever done, the scenery, the scale. Uh, Dill speaks about, you know, a spacious place. And for me, there was just something about being up in the mountains. You cross these incredible bridges. The, the scale of everything is just unbelievable. I mean, Jess and I, we've lived in the Rockies. We've spent time in the Alps. But there's something about the Himalayas that's just so expansive. It's expansive for your soul. Everywhere you look are these just 8,000-meter peaks. And it, it really is quite uh, incredible. And there were moments of, of just pure beauty. The, the, the Buddhists believe that the higher you get, the closer you get to God. And I can kind of see why they believe that, because there's just something so sacred about being up in this place, at least for me. And so uh, I was grateful for God for just allowing me to be in this place. And I want to kind of bring you into the moment with me. And so I shot a little video on my phone that I was sending back to those who are supporting me and allowed me to get there. And I wanted to share just this moment with you to kind of put you in the picture of, of how the emotions are sort of running high when you're hiking up uh, near base camp. Take a look. I'm uh, almost at Teng Boshe from Namche Bazaar. We just climbed about 900 meters up. I'm surrounded by these beautiful mountains. I'm so grateful to be here. I've been listening to worship the whole way up, and there's that line in the song that says, you know, every painted sky, a canvas of your grace. If creation still obeys you, so will I so beautiful up here in his creation and I just want to say thank you to everyone who made this possible I'm so grateful I'm not crying you're crying it's just raining on my face um, I was actually just crying at how bad my hair looked that's mainly the that was the main main reason so I did cut my hair so um, now, the actual route, uh, we kind of, there's sort of a map we'll put up. That's, that's the actual marathon route. But the hiking route, my, my Jess put a, made a little map for our kids so that they could follow along from home, um, that they could kind of go day to day. There it was. Every day, the little magnet moved along the fridge. And uh, the first thing you do is you fly to Lukla. And Lukla is the most dangerous airport in the world. It's sort of pitched on the side of a mountain at an angle, and you sort of just creep up there. Um, and uh, sadly, actually, uh, there was a, a crash just a few weeks after we, we left. Um, but really, really crazy experience just in itself. And then you hike from Lukla to a place called Fakting. <laughs> Feels good saying that in church, Fakting. So Fakting was actually a very nice place. Um, and then, sorry, maybe just edit that out of the video. Just a thought. Anyway, from, from Fakting to Namche Bazaar. Uh, Namche Bazaar is kind of the gateway to Everest. It's, it's just a beautiful place. Uh, and, then, um, and then you keep going to Perishe, Labuche, and all the way up to Gorakshep. Uh, every day, you, you, every, every now and then, you do an acclimatization day just to get used to the, the altitude. And it kind of, as you can see, the, the sort of scenery changes. It goes from very forested, lots of rivers, to sort of this like almost sparse sort of moonscape by the time you get higher. Uh, way above the tree line. But as you can see in the pictures, honestly, they don't do it justice, but it really was incredible. So let me kind of, yeah, let me take you back to, to the morning of the race, the 18th. And uh, the, the actual obstacle course race that we did was actually pretty short. It was only three kilometers long, but in the three kilometers is a mile of elevation. So you start in the dark 
uh, you got all your gear on, you know, gloves and, you know, everything, jackets, outer layers, and that's sort of the start of the race. You run through that little start, and you run up to the top of that, that peak there called Kalapatar. It's about 6,000 meters. You look down onto Everest Base Camp, beautiful view of Everest. Not that I took much notice of it at the top there. But that climb in the morning, remember, it was pitch dark at the time. Uh, temperatures were around minus 25 and uh, we were climbing uh, up this mountain, and honestly, it took an hour to get there. That was pretty much the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. Um, my f- fingers absolutely froze. I don't know if I just didn't have the right gear or what, but I honestly thought I was going to lose my fingers to frostbite. Uh, one of the guys in our team actually fell over and collapsed. His oxygen sats dropped to 60%. They had to, uh, air, they had to chopper him out as well. And, and so you're watching all of this happening in front of you, because that's the thing up there. If something goes wrong, it goes wrong very quickly. Um, and so all of this is going through your head. Eventually, at the top of that peak, they, just to add insult to injury, they gave us a 20 kg sandbag carry. It was filled with rocks. And we had to carry this bag on the top of the peak. And um, people were crying. And it, it was pretty wild. So I was pretty happy to get back down, do the obstacles. The obstacles weren't too much of a challenge, to be honest. Managed to get through. Now the sun had come up. It was a little warmer. Um, that, the only one that was really difficult was the warped wall. You might have seen that on like Ninja Warrior and stuff like that. Um, and at, at room, you know, at, at uh, not room temperature, at, uh, at sea level um, and room temperature, um, that obstacle is actually pretty easy normally, but at altitude, that wall felt like a mountain. Um, and so we, someone actually took a video of me doing the wall, so take a look. All right, Tom. That shout was pure adrenaline and uh, gratitude that I made it through. And uh, so that's so that's kind of the obstacle course done. Now you do a 30-minute medical check, um, they, you know, compulsory medical check to make sure you're still functioning, and then you start the the marathon the world's highest marathon, starting at Gorakhshep all the way down to Namcha Bazaar. Normally, what would take four or five days to hike up, you do that in one go. They actually mismeasured the distance, so it ended up being 48 kilometers. Thanks, guys. Um, so it actually became the world's highest ultra marathon. Um, and I recognize at this point that I still had a very long way to go. Now, I want to pause the story there because I recognize that, you know, some of you are looking at you like, why? Like, Why? Would you do this? What is wrong with you? And, and the reality is, I don't know. I am seeing a therapist. Um, that is a true story. I think something went wrong a while back. Anyway, um, I don't know. So, so, but I, and I recognize you may not be interested in this. You may not be interested in exercise or obstacle course racing, any of that stuff. But here's the one thing I do know. Every single one of us have obstacles in our lives. Every single one of us face challenges along the way, whether that's in our relationships, maybe our health, as we were praying for earlier, struggles in our families, wrestles with our identity, perhaps some pattern of behavior or sin that we've tried to shake and we just can't seem to move beyond. We all face struggles. We all have mountains to climb and walls to scale that sometimes seem insurmountable, yes? Life is hard. I don't need to tell you that. You already know that. Life is hard, and maybe like me in that moment, you felt like giving up. You felt like throwing in the towel. You felt like, I'm not good enough. You felt like, I'm not going to make it. Some of you maybe in this room right now maybe feel like you're about to throw in the towel. Well, I want to say to you today, it's not over. (laughs) 
In fact, I feel like God told me to come to you today and tell you it's not over. That that's a word for someone here today, that there is more inside of you, that there is more around you, and there is more for you than you can ask, think, or even imagine. That's what the scripture teaches, exceedingly, abundantly more. But here's the thing, in order to embrace that more, we have to learn to embrace the suck. <laughs> Say, embrace the suck. Embr I should have changed that, embrace the discomfort, but I like embrace the suck, okay? There's a famous poem by Robert Frost, maybe you know it. He says this, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled, and that made all the difference. You see, I think in our culture, the road most traveled is the road of comfort and convenience. Too often in life, we're tempted to take the easy option, the path of least resistance, and sometimes that's okay. That, that sometimes we need that. But more often than not, what I have found is that shortcuts lead to deep cuts or long delays or dead ends. It turns out the path of least resistance is a terrible teacher. Embrace the discomfort. I mean, think about it. Every great story ever told involves some kind of pain or struggle, right? I mean, that is like the archetype of all stories, a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it, a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it, Frodo and the Ring, Cinderella, Gladiator, Braveheart, it doesn't really matter, that is the story. Without conflict, without struggle, there is no story. I mean, if Frodo had just gone and dropped the ring in the fire, okay, cool, done. They wouldn't have made 18 movies or whatever, you know. Um, I think deep down we know that. We know that every great story involves struggle, but too often we're unwilling to embrace the pain and therefore the potential greatness of the story that we're actually in. Telling a great story with your life sounds amazing and exciting and wonderful, but here's the truth. When it comes down to the actual work, we don't want to do it. People love to have lived a great story, but few people like the work it takes to make that happen. We want the product without the process. <laughs> Unfortunately, joy costs pain. That's just how it is. I don't know why it is, but that's how it is. So here's the question. I don't know where I got this question from, but it's a great one. Could it be that the difference between where you are and where you want to be is the pain you're unwilling to embrace? In your marriage, in your parenting, in your business, could it be that the difference between where you are and where you want to be is the pain you're unwilling to embrace, the time you're unwilling to put in, the wrong you're unwilling to admit, the counselor you're unwilling to see, the conversation you're unwilling to have? Embrace the suck. Don't run away from it. Don't numb it out. Lean in because I'm absolutely convinced this is where we grow the most. When things get difficult and you want to quit, know that the way is through and not out. Let's get back to the marathon. To be honest, it's very hard to describe, and I actually don't have any pictures from the marathon. I didn't take a single picture because <laughs> I was busy trying to survive. <laughs> now, normally, just to give you context, normally it would take me about three hours and 15, three hours 20 to do a marathon. This marathon took me nine and a half hours. Nine and a half hours. Just because of the technicality of the terrain, the, the steepness of the terrain, it was 5,000 meters of descent, but it was also 2,000 meters of ascent. And so 
it's not just, oh, there we go. Oh, it looks, you can take the sound off, but it looks very nice in this video, by the way. When it all happens in 90 seconds for the gram, it's, it looks very pretty. But this is kind of a picture of the route, and, and, and it's, it's interesting because at, at every, when you're up in the mountains in, in the Himalayas, none of the Sherpas or the porters, they, they don't measure things in distance. It's all measured in time. Because distance is almost irrelevant. My brother-in-law asked me, why did it take you so long to do that? I was like, bro. <laughs> Everything is measured in, in time and not distance. And I thought, you know what, that's actually quite a, a nice little nugget of truth, isn't it? That's so, this is a good lesson for life. Not to measure our lives by the distance we've traveled, but rather by the time we've put in. You see, it's easy to measure our lives by, by achievements, by success, by productivity. But I love Robert Louis Stevenson. He says, don't judge each day by the harvest you reap, but rather by the seeds that you plant. The thing that also took me by surprise as I was running, that's sort of the route, gives you an idea of what the running route was looking like. But um, what took me by surprise is that other than one section of the race where we headed up to a place called Chukung, uh, it was about a 10K little detour so they could make up the distance. Um, I passed a few runners there so who, who were behind me, so I saw them on the way back, um, and the guy in front of me. But other than interacting with those three or four people, for nine and a half hours, I did not see a single human being. I was just running, had my earphones in, listening to worship, worship on the, on the downhills, hip-hop and rap on the uphills, um, a little training tip for you there. Um, so, you know, I, I was just on my own, and some people, I think they would freak out, but I absolutely loved it, man. I absolutely loved it. I was just like, this is incredible. I had to like pinch myself and be like, Tom, you're running in the Himalayas. Like, this is so awesome. Um, and so it, it, was, it was pretty amazing. I also want to just shout out to some of the other people who are running with me. There were 34 of us. Um, there were only four people who finished out of the 34. And of those four, two were women. Yeah. And those two women finished ahead of me. Yeah, Yara, that little, she's like this high, uh, she's from Brazil, uh, on that little up and back, I heard this heavy breathing behind me, and she's honest, she's like this high, and she came up behind me, and she just gently gave me a pat in the lower back and said, you're looking good, Tom, and then she just slowly disappeared <laughs> into the distance, and I never saw her again, um, there was another girl on the trip. She never actually finished the run, but she was an incredible person. And she, um, she you would, when you look at her, you, you wouldn't say she's an you know, extreme athlete. Uh, she was from India, a girl named Cam. And, but on about day two or three, I was sort of walking alongside her on the trek, and I noticed she was missing a pinky finger and some of her fingers. And I said, oh, what happened there? And she said, well, actually, you know, this was when I summited Everest a few years ago, and uh, we got stuck on the side of the mountain. Our oxygen ran out, and we had an avalanche, and so I was stranded, and I lost some of my fingers to frostbite. And I was like, okay. I was like, well, you know, the one time I like twisted my ankle and like <laughs> had to go for the physio. It was so, so hectic. Six weeks. Whew. You know. But honestly, I was in awe of these women's strength and grit and determination. And I just want to say in a world and sometimes in churches that tell people, that tell women that their place is in the background. I just want to say, if you're a woman and God has gifted you to lead, for God's sake, for the church's sake, for the sake of this sorry, dark world, lead. 
My wife asked me to put that in. No, I'm joking. <laughs> so like I said, 34 people started, only four finished. And again, these were like hardcore amazing people. I mean, there were Navy SEALs, there were ex-Marines. One of the guys, uh, Charlie Engel, you can Google him, he ran across the Sahara Desert solo. 4,600 miles in 111 days. That's a comrades a day for 111 days. And he never made it. That was, that's the crazy thing. I was this random pastor from Durban. <laughs> and I didn't go there to compete in this thing. I literally went to try and complete this thing. But somewhere along the line, I realized, probably about 27 Ks in, I realized, wait a minute, I'm lying in second place in the men. And uh, if I keep going, I may actually be able to hold hold this position. And so I knew the guy behind me was another runner from the Philippines, Thumbi. Uh, he's a, like a world-renowned mountain runner. And I knew he was much faster than me in running. But I, so the whole time I was running, like the last 25 Ks, all I did was think, don't let Thumbi catch me. <laughs> um, and when I eventually realized with a few Ks to go that I actually was going to come in second place, man, I just broke down. Had a little cry. I paused I literally got down on my knees. I thanked God for keeping me safe. Prayed for my family. And then at 5.21 p.m., nearly 11 hours after starting the obstacle course race, I crossed the finish line in the dark of the Altitude OCR World Championships in second place. And honestly, the magnitude of that, there's Yara. She beat me. Okay. <laughs> T.S. Eliot said this, only those who will risk going too far can possibly find out how far one can go. And that day in the mountains, I found out how far I can go. And I came out realizing that I can and we can and you can go a lot farther than you give yourself credit for. There is more in you, there is more for you, and there is more around you. People have asked me since then, you know, what do you think made the difference? You know, how is it that you were able to do so well? And I thought about that, and it definitely wasn't because I was the fastest or the most talented, but what I was is I was pretty pedantic about all the little details. They told us all these things, you know, make sure you put face cream on, make sure you keep your lips, you know, hydrated, make sure you never expose the back of your neck, make sure you layer correctly, make sure your fingernails are cut and your feet are always dry. And all these things, they seem kind of insignificant, but I was like pedantic about that stuff. And honestly, it gave me an edge because there were people, a lot of people got very bad blistering on their lips, which meant that they couldn't eat as well, which meant their immune system was compromised and they didn't make it. I was able to eat everything. <laughs> a lot of people didn't like the food. I was just like, give me the calories, I'll take it. And I think it seems kind of insignificant, but that's the other lesson I took away from Everest is do the small things. Do the small things. Craig Richelle, famous quote, it's often the small things that no one sees that results in the big changes that everyone wants. And so that's so true. It's the small investments made consistently over the long time that have, made the, that have the biggest payoffs. And this is true in every area of life, whether it's marriage, finances, parenting, whatever it is. My wife and I, we've been married for 18 years this year. And, and uh, when, people, when I tell people that, they're like, dude, when did you get married? When you were 12. But I'm a little older than that. But we've been married 18. And what I realized looking back on the 18 years is that it wasn't the big holidays or the fancy gifts. It was the small kindnesses, the kiss when you get home, the stacking of the dishwasher. Can I hear Amen. <laughs> The saying of those three little words, I am sorry. <laughs> Tastes like vinegar coming out of our mouth. I get it. You know, we, we're trying really hard with dinners around the table, you know, trying to get like a consistent family dinner time. But to be honest, you know, you read all the parenting books, it's all about the dinner time. 
man, our dinner time is like we're done in four minutes. Oaks just smash it, and then we're like, can we watch TV now? You know, so, <laughs> but I figured, you know what? My kids may not remember a specific meal, but they will remember night in, night out, year in, year out, consistency. When it comes to living a life of passion and purpose, too often we get overwhelmed by all the things we want to change and improve that we become paralyzed with all too much and we don't know where to start. And we fall into this trap of believing that in order to make, to see big results, we have to make big changes. But I'm here to tell you that simply isn't true. It's the small things that no one sees that results in the big changes that everyone wants. Do the small things. How do you climb a mountain? One step at a time. One more funny story and then I'm going to kind of wrap things up. When we got to the end of the race, we were all like high-fiving each other and hugging and crying and whatever. And, um, and then we like all looked at each other. We went down to the tea room. It was pitch dark, we, you know, in our racing kit, whatever. We started to get cold. And uh, we looked at each other and we're like, where are our bags? And then we realized our bags are a day and a half behind us on the back of yaks. So we had nothing. No cell phone charger, no change of clothes, no towel, no sleeping bag, no nothing. And so we all just... We actually went to the Irish pub, the world's highest Irish pub at Namche Bazaar. We had a beer, and we went to bed. We put on our waterproofs, we put on our shoes, we put on our beanies, we put on our jackets, and we just lied down in the bed and went to sleep after running for 11 and a half hours. It smelled good. Um, here's what I realized, though. We actually don't need as much stuff as we think we do. And I'm going to tell you, God has given you what you need. He's given you what you need to be the parents he's called you to be to be the husband, to be the wife that he's called you to be. Last thing I'll say about Everest, embrace the suck, do the small things, and then finally don't stop dreaming. Many people don't know, but I actually, this dream, I wrote this dream down when I was 14 years old, back at Northwood. Our counselor told us to write down a list of 100 things, or a list of, like a bucket list, and I wrote a list of 100 things I wanted to do before I die. I've done 63 of them so far. <laughs> I'm working my way through it. Some of them I'll never do because I was 14 when I wrote it, and one of them was join the Mile High Club. So <laughs> trust me, I've tried that one. Um, okay. It's 14, you know what I mean? So, yeah. But one of them was see Everest Base Camp, 26 years in the making. And holding that medal and that trophy at the end, Sharing that, getting to share that moment with Jess, it was, honestly, it was incredible. I got a tattoo to remember it, one of my favorite quotes of all time uh, from T.E. Lawrence. It says, all men and, and women dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their mind awake to find that it was vanity, but the dreamers of the day are dangerous men and women, that they may act their dreams with open eyes to make it possible. Don't stop dreaming. And don't just dream in the dusty recesses of your mind at night. Wake up and make those dreams a reality. Dreams don't just come true. They're made true. Everest expanded my view on what is possible. It reminded me that we live in a big world and we serve a big God. So whatever God's put in your heart, whatever dream, we live in a world that will try that knock, that, knock that out of you. And it's easy in this country to become cynical, right? To stop dreaming. Well, I say don't. You were not built for a life of mediocrity. None of us were. I know I've gone over time, but I'm going to wrap up here. I came across this little story. It's like a little parable. Come, said the teacher. Let us go up a mountain. So we did. There was nothing easy about it. I had to rest several times just to catch my breath, but finally we made it to the top. 
Look at that, the teacher said, pointing to the panorama before us. It was worth the climb. Do you know what it's called in Hebrew, what we just did? Torture, I asked. No, it's called aliyah. It means the going up, the ascent. When you read in the scriptures that Jesus went to Jerusalem, you'll see this word. It's used to work the word up. Not only because the physical terrain, but because Jerusalem is a holy city. And so to go to Jerusalem is to make an aliyah. The upward journey. A spiritual people must make a spiritual journey. What's the journey, I asked. Your life, said the teacher. Your entire life is the aliyah. It is to be an upward journey. And each day you'll be given choices. Every choice will give you the chance to go lower, to stay the same, or to go higher. Choose the higher path, even if it's harder. Take the higher step, and your life will be an aliyah. The title of my message today is Aliyah, the upward journey. And your mission, Link Church, our mission is to choose the higher step, the higher act, the higher ground, the higher path in every decision. And then our lives become an Aliyah. Remember Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus embraced the pain. Jesus embraced the discomfort for our sake. And the answer to the question, are you feeling lonely? Have you lost heart? The answer is not my three points. <laughs> as helpful as they may be. The answer is and always will be Jesus. That is the answer to the longing of your soul, to the longing of your heart. He is the answer. He is the source. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Isaiah 40, 31, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength and they will soar on wings like eagles and they will run and they will not grow weary and they will walk and not be faint. So this is my prayer for you, Link Church. You still have breath in your lungs. You have still have a purpose for your life. You have a race to run and a course to finish. God didn't send you to start a race. He called you to finish one. So don't you dare give up. One more scripture, Psalm 121. It's a song of ascent. It says, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We don't look to the mountains for our help. We look to the one who made the mountains. And here's the promise. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. And the sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going, both now and forevermore. Amen.